This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Alright, welcome back to the Survival and Basic Badass Podcast with Kevin and Chuck. Today, we're going to talk about, well, military tactics. Um, one of the big things, like officers in the military, um, typically, like especially the Army, that kind of thing, you know, the Army will send them off to West Point and they'll study. Uh, the Navy has a, uh, you know, war, war college kind of thing and and naval command stuff where you're taught military tactics and seeing what people have done in history and understanding the approach can really be a force multiplier. Um, you know, uh, even like you think of things like, uh, like, like the, the war in Afghanistan here and, and different things we've done. Um, you know, the way people approach fighting is how you're going to be able to take on a, a more superior force. Um, thinking is one of the things that's going to give you leverage and understanding history. Um, you know, reading up on, on people like Genghis Khan or Napoleon or George Washington, you know, these are the people that um, Patton, uh, you know, that have changed the outcome of wars, you know. Uh, these are the things that, define you know the outcome they pick and choose the winners uh so 
especially when you're looking at things from a small approach, you know, with, you know, Hey, your little, you know, shit hits the fan survival community. You read all these prepper books and, and you read, you know, the novels about people being harassed by gangs or maybe taking on a bigger force, you know, different things. It ends up that, you know, strategy are things that are going to make it, you know, decide whether you win or lose. So I kind of wanted to kind of go through some different strategy techniques. We'll kind of see where they've been applied in history and, uh, you know, take a look at at how it's worked out. So, well, there's a lot of different things and I I got a list. Uh, One of the key, uh, key techniques is deception. Um, being elusive, you know, keeping your, your enemy, you know, if you, you just go out and line up on the battlefield, be like, Hey, you know, our two armies, we're both moving towards each other and we're going to end up colliding and you know, whatever, there's nothing to that, but the element of surprise, uh, we're going to stick with deception for a minute, you know, hiding your movements, your tactics, can definitely give you an upper hand. Mm-hmm. Right. Now, I know um, one of the famous uh, deceptions historically, it would be um, General Patton during the Second World War. Um, they wanted the the to make the Germans think that the attack was coming from the north, coming from Norway, from Switzerland, Sweden, right. <clears throat> down in. And uh, General Patton... Uh, had a bunch of artists actually working for him, making inflatable tanks, making, you know, inflatable uh, trucks so that from aircraft, it looked like they had a huge military base and uh, were stockpiling ammunition, supplies, and men. Um, You know, obviously the attack came at uh, Normandy, but um, a lot of the, uh, the reason that the Norman invasion worked so well was because most of their panzer divisions were held back you know, so that they can right. go, so that they could go north instead of going uh, going west. Right, because the Germans were unsure, you know, or or actually they believed the attack was going to come somewhere else. They also spread a lot of disinformation. Mm-hmm. Um, they had people on the ground, you know, a lot of the people who were like double agents and that kind of thing were spreading, you know, hey, this is what's going to happen. Um, having your enemy overestimate or underestimate your forces in you know one area or, or another can really change the outcome. You know, if people are, I don't know, I, I would say even off balance, which is really another topic we're going to kind of go into here. But I mean, that's the thing is is to if you can deceive them and and allow them to believe, you know, that things aren't really as they are, you can definitely manipulate and cause them to act in certain ways that'll, you know, lead to your benefit. Right, right. Um, yeah, another thing, you know, who the, the the kings of deception really were the British during the Second World War. And uh, going back to that, uh, the deception during, uh, before the uh, Normandy invasion, they actually found a dead homeless person. And they dressed him up in a, in a British uh, officer uniform, and they shot him out of a torpedo tube. And handcuffed to his wrist was a briefcase with all these plans about how they were going to attack from the north. 
And, and you know, the Germans found this corpse floating around with the briefcase, and they actually bought that shit. That was one of you know one of the tactics they used to uh, convince the Germans that you know the attack was coming from a different direction. That definitely sounds like deception to me. Um, I mean, that's the thing. I mean, this stuff you know really can affect the outcome. Um, so that leads me into our uh, next topic here of keeping the enemy off balance. And you know, if they don't know what's happening, you can pin the enemy down or encourage them to go into an area where you can kill them, where you can trap them, something feasible. I mean, just cutting off your enemy, maybe not such a great tactic on its own, but cutting off your enemy from supplies and where they can't retreat or, you know, where they're stuck in an open area or, you know, a kill zone, if you will, is, you know, definitely can be advantageous. Yeah, now, when it came to the uh, to uh, Genghis Khan and the Mongols, one of their one of their main tactics was to uh, act like they were losing the battle. They call it a feigned retreat, and that you know it's a way to keep right. somebody off balance. They would just keep backing up and backing up and be losing the battle, and then you know a uh, second second party of Mongols would attack from the flank, and they would already be drawn right. out and out of order. To, you know, trying to chase Mongols down. And, you know, once their lines were broken and they were separated, you know, because they thought they were winning, they're all trying to run and get ahead and, and capture somebody. Then, you know, they would be attacked from the side or, from, you know, from a different direction. And that would be the end of it. They did that in several battles. Most famously uh, uh, was their invasion of uh, Europe, you know, in a battle with, uh, with uh, Russian forces. The uh, with keeping them off balance, like uh, there was during when Napoleon was going after England, England had a uh, rear admiral Horatio Nelson. Mm -hmm. Horatio Nelson came up with a plan where just doing things untraditionally, I guess, in the past, you know, a lot of the ships had kind of just come at each other. Think of how the British fought other wars where they all just line up in a big line and shoot at Mm -hmm. each other. Naval battles were typically going the same way. Well, Horatio Nelson was like, hey, if I just make two columns and we cut through the middle and attack them from the sides as opposed to the head-on attack that they're prepared for, you can throw them off balance. And he was able to, you know, set Napoleon back and and really, uh, you know, change the outcome. The American Revolution... You know, people talk about how, you know, I I always heard stories in elementary school. Now, this is, you know, I mean, I was in elementary school right after the American Revolution. So I still, you know, fresh in everybody's mind. Right. So they, uh, you know, they used to talk about, oh, you know, our guerrilla warfare tactics and the stuffy British, you know, they would uh, just line up and, and shoot at each other, whereas We had, you know, Davy Crockett and whatnot coming in from the side. I don't even think he was Revolutionary War. I think he was a little bit later. But but that's not what we were taught. We were taught, you know, you had Davy Crockett (laughs) and all these guys ready freaking from the side, you know, taking pot shots. And, and, uh, yeah, you know, and and a lot of, you know, that's that's 
traditionally that is what they say about the American Revolution, but it, it's yeah. not really that accurate. Uh, there were a lot of okay. um, in the uh, battle following uh, Concord and Lexington that 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 did happen quite a bit. You know, initially there were a lot of uh, what they called Minutemen, right? Um, you know, guys, guys at home hear that British forces are coming towards their town. They, you know, run and tell their neighbors, everybody grabs their guns and they run out there. And, and that during that battle specifically, that did happen quite a bit because they were, you know, a lot of guys coming in throughout the battle and just coming across different forces and there would be small skirmishes. Um, but for the majority of the American revolution, um, and specifically the battles that, that the United States won. They were traditionally, you know, columns lined up on a battlefield firing at each other. And a lot of people yeah. don't realize that. I, I myself didn't realize that, you know, that that was the majority of the uh, the warfare during the American Revolution. Yeah. No, and that's, and again, we had a lot of, uh, you know, kind of disinformation and stuff like that going on. You know, that was a big player in the American tactics, you know, I mean, because we were outnumbered by a superior right. force. And now, one, we kind of had the, you know, burn the ships kind of attitude of if we lose, we're screwed. Right. You know, there's nowhere to retreat mm -hmm. to, you know, you, when you're the invading force, you know, you could kind of bail out any time. Oh, we'll go back to England. Don't, don't worry about it. We didn't even need that tax money, you know, but, uh, when it's your home and and these people are coming in to dominate you it's it's win or die you right, know right yeah all those guys were looking at getting themselves hung if they if they lost yes now you had touched on earlier uh envelopment so envelopment is like flanking or sneaking in from the behind, you know, or and cutting off people from their supplies, cutting them off from retreat, cutting them off from maybe another part of their mm -hmm. unit, you know, reinforcements, right. these kind of things, right. Pinning people down. Yeah. And, you know, part of it is, is pushing pushing the enemy into such a small place that they don't have any ability for movement. Um, that's one of the uh, one of the ways that the blitzkrieg the blitzkriegs worked, and we can get into that a little bit more. But the thing with the envelopment, I wanted to get back to the Revolutionary War here because that was one of the British one of the main British tactics uh, for the entire nation. The problem with en with envelopment when it gets to that size is that you have to really count that count on your you know on your uh, friends on the other end to do their work. And the British kind of fucked up yeah. that way. So what happened was the uh, what they want, what the British wanted to do is is land forces in northern New York and in uh, and uh, south of uh, Philadelphia. So so during okay. the Battle of Brandywine, uh, William Howe, he was the leader of the British forces. Brandywine Creek is just uh, south of Philadelphia. So there they met George Washington. They had the Battle of Brandywine Creek, and that was actually the longest battle of the American Revolutionary War. It took 11 hours, and uh, there was about uh, 15,500 uh, 15, forces for the, with the British. George Washington had uh, 14,600 uh, soldiers, and they ended up with um, 
850 casualties and 400 captured the the uh the americans did and the british were able to capture philadelphia but the other plan was uh the forces in the north in northern new york um that was horatio gates for the uh was the head of the uh, u.s troops with uh nine thousand soldiers um and john bergen with seven thousand two hundred soldiers now that was like a catastrophic loss for the british because you just had one of your enveloping armies completely captured and destroyed so then you only have half of your you know you're dividing your forces by by doing this so now so it fucked it worked didn't work for them but you know it did kind of screw me in my childhood because henry clinton after the battle of saratoga wanted to just fuck everybody in new york so he sent ships up the hudson to burn all the hudson valley and they burned the city of kingston where i where i grew up and i had to grow up in this whole city right. because it had been you know it's 200 years ago it was beautiful but then the british burned it it was the, it was capital. the capital of new york and the british burned it and it was actually forces led by john vaughn uh he was a, a british soldier he was the one responsible for burning the city that i grew up in and he died in 1795 on June 30th of ass cancer. And everyone agreed he was an asshole and nobody cared when he died. And nobody yeah. cared. All right. Now, what's funny is the British actually learned about this whole flanking and envelopment shit from Napoleon. Um, Napoleon, when fighting the British, would do a lot of what you talked about earlier, where they would feign retreat and start to back off and then he would have the rest of his army you know either flank him from the side or close the gap from behind and you know shut people off then they'd come in and devastate Mm -hmm. them now you do have with smaller forces you have to consider friendly fire and that's where flanking comes in um when you come in from the side you can have the enemy kind of caught in a crossfire Uh, If you think of more rather than like hard square right angles, Mm -hmm. if you come in kind of at a diamond, like just more that approach where both of you are shooting, you know, we'll say one of you 30 degrees to the left of center and one of you 30 degrees to the right of center and you both come in from the outside, you can avoid friendly fire and yet you can really kind of close and, and make it so that when people are unsure which direction the bullets are coming from, or they know they're coming from both, but the one that's going to hit you in the ass, it's definitely hard to take cover. And, you know, you can ensure that, you know, you have access to all the different, you know, angles of approach where it makes it tough for them to get real cover. And that makes a big difference. You certainly don't want to find yourself uh, in a position where you're shooting over the heads of your enemy and, and hitting your friends on the other side. Yeah. Um, there is, if you guys study, uh, you know, they, there was a guy, uh, hang on. I don't even know. Do you know who I did on killing uh, no. general, it was uh, Colonel, but I don't remember what his name was. Right. No. All right. Keep going for yeah, a minute a, here. I'll go grab a book the book called here. on killing. I I've read it once, once or twice. I know Chuck's read it uh, a couple of times. And it's um, specifically, it talks about the uh, um, the will to kill somebody. 
you know, certain situations where you might hesitate. You know, during the Civil War, a lot of the forces fired over each other's heads because they didn't want to shoot their countrymen. But some people, you know, sometimes, right. sometimes you're in a situation where you have so much hatred for the enemy that you have no problem killing them. You know, it's just uh, just instincts. You know, you bash somebody's head. Well, the after they've come in and burned out. Right. After they've come in and burned your house down and, uh, you know, kidnapped your kids or something, you're probably a little more motivated to, you know, have direct uh, kill shots. Right. It's another thing where you're sent off where, cause Hey, those people have a, uh, you know, yellowish skin or whatever that you decide you hate them for that reason. Right. Then it's harder to find your core motivation, mm-hmm. you know? Um, but uh, yeah, it's actually Dave Grossman. And uh, he did a couple of books on combat mm-hmm. and also on killing. And he really goes into the psychology. Um, and these were both uh, like required reading at the war college. You know, these are things that, you know, people really study and, and get to the, uh, to the bottom of stuff. It really uh, understanding tactics and understanding, you know, what people's motivations are and different techniques can really change the outcome. Another technique Kevin had touched on is blitzkrieg. Uh, we know it now thanks to uh, W as uh, shock and right. awe. Right. Now, it's a very, very similar tactics there. They're not exactly the same, but it's very similar. Now, blitzkrieg is German for light, lightning war. But I don't think it was actually called that by the Germans until later. I think the British actually coined that term. Yeah. The idea okay. of a blitzkrieg, right, um, is, is that you uh, start with our, you know, heavy artillery attack, uh, attack from air, you know, whether it's bombing or, uh, you know, reconnaissance, and then uh, fast-moving uh, ground forces. Right. So rapid dominance, mm-hmm. overwhelming power. And destruction, um, having, you know, the will to fight, just come in and freaking devastating. Um, and where you come across as so superior that it basically, they lose their will to fight. Um, you know, the enemy is one disabled to a huge extent, you know, cutting off their supplies early. Um, as the war starts to move on, you can kind of group your things in the areas you're going to, you know, need and and you understand all right this is the approach we're going to take we've dealt with the enemy these are the tactics they take we need to kind of get supplies and and do the right thing to protect against certain types of attacks things like that when you come in with just dominance right in the beginning with a heavy blow they don't have time to prepare for your technique whereas the slow drawn out when you do little things unless you're changing up your tactics, which is a great move, um, you know, mixing up the way you do it. If you have one type of approach, eventually, you know, it's like a football game. People think about football, you know, Oh, well, you know, uh, John Elway and the Denver Broncos back in the day, it's a passing game. You know, we know they're going to be throwing the long ball and whatever. Whereas other teams you'll have where, <clears throat> You know, it's all about, uh, you know, uh, um, the Redskins, you know, it'd be all about defense mm-hmm. and things like that. You know, you'd have the hard line back in the 90s and and things like that. You know, you just couldn't get through where you shut the uh, opponent down. But if you have one style, 
people can, you know, certain teams will thrive against that because they know how to deal with that style. But if you change up where one week you're strong in this, the next week you're strong in that. And that's where planning comes in, you know, also know your enemy, you know, that's where that deception comes in, you know, get in there and and find out what's going on. And if you can gather the next thing is, well, let, let me finish shocking off. Sorry. I'm getting excited. I get ahead of myself. So Blitzkrieg, overwhelming dominance. Turns out the Americans had our own version of shock and awe in World War mm-hmm. II. And it's called the A-bomb. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> that, that, that's a showstopper mm-hmm. right there. You come in and you're like, hey, this is what we're bringing to the table. Did you know that they were planning um, on, on dropping one nuclear bomb on one Japanese city every week until Japan surrendered. It only took two bombs, but they're planning on doing that shit for, for months. They were doing it. And they had the two like back to back. It wasn't even like, Oh, let's wait and see if they want right. to surrender. It was just, let's, let's just show around. them that we're not fucking mm-hmm. around, you know? Yeah. Um, let me see. Now, one thing with the uh, with the Blitzkrieg, there's there's really only one way to stop it, and the Russians okay. the Russians were able to do it at Stalingrad, and really what it takes is is stubborn stubbornness and a real belief in the cause that you're doing, that you're you know you will start starve to death while fighting. You know, a lot of the soldiers in Russia didn't yes. even have rifles when they began. They took the rifles off of other dead Russians. And uh, they were just willing to die for their country, and they weren't going to run away. They weren't going to flee. They were going to stay right there in their city. And, you know, they were eating rats at one point, you know, even even eating other people because they were not going to surrender even though their supplies were cut off, even though they weren't going to get reinforcements. And it bogged down the Russians. This was That was Operation Barbarossa, I think, if, uh, uh, from, the, from the German viewpoint. And they, you know, if if you're not gonna not gonna surrender, at, even though you're surrounded, then that kind of bogs down the Blitzkrieg and allows that you know uh, cities further along the line are gonna have time to prepare for time right. to prepare, and that yeah. really uh, just you know screws the whole Blitzkrieg situation up. So you have to know during that that t- type of tactic, you have to know that you're gonna be able to defeat them you know, with overwhelming force. That's the point of the overwhelming force. Yeah. Um, obviously I had mentioned, uh, W, uh, in the, the, the war of Baghdad is, I believe what we call it. Um, 2003 in Iraq, when we came with the, the shock and awe technique, um, we were able to go in and hit hard right out of the gate. Um, we, Again, superior air power. It's kind of like like the Blitzkrieg where we went in and took out their anti-aircraft stuff right away. Um, we threw some kind of a mesh net over the power lines and, you know, dropped that on there and, and destroyed power stations and just intense, overwhelming air power and just hammered them and hammered them. And that's why it was such a quick, immediate devastation. Um, It really made the difference where we were able to come in and dominate 
and really set the standard. All right. So the next on my list would be really like a surprise attack. Um, I know with surprise attack, I like to think like, you know, um, ambush, something like that. The, the idea is to be able to get your troops into position without the enemy knowing, you know, and that that's not an easy feat or at least hit them unexpectedly. You know, when you have guys out on the lookout and they're watching the, uh, the enemy camp and, you know, or you have spy planes, whatever it is, right. You understand that your enemy is preparing to move and they're coming in to, you know, they're coming to make attack. If you can catch them off balance, you know, before they arrive, before they group, before they put into position or even plan, plan ahead. Um, if you, I mean, even better if you know their tactics of how they're going to attack and what areas they're planning, if they're planning on flanking you from a certain direction. But that's going to take some serious intelligence, double agent kind of stuff to really, you know, know their core techniques. But an ambush and catching people off guard is really, you know, especially when you can pin them in or, you know, cut off their retreat kind of thing. You know, you always see, uh, I think, uh, I don't know how we haven't covered more, but uh, the Wolverines in Red Dawn, right? Right. Um, they used to get like a front vehicle and a back vehicle. So there's no escape or retreat. Right. And kind of close the box. And then, you know, once you have them, you know, in a basically set area, and if you can have dominance, if you can choose the right place for an ambush where you're coming down from above, that kind of thing, it really, you know, can change the outcome of a right. war. If you can if you can limit their movement immediately, then you can dominate the, the battlefield. Uh, what do they call that? The kill zone, right? When you have your enemy trapped in an area, you know, the low ground and, and uh, you know, outgunned or, or outflanked. Um, you know, that's, that's really uh, hard to fight your way out of an ambush. You know, it's, it's the only thing you can do in an ambush situation like that is an orderly retreat, which is almost impossible when, you know, the enemy is pressing down on you. Oh, now, bad. yeah, not specifically an ambush, but, a, but it was a surprise attack. I wanted to talk about the Battle of Trenton. Um, that's that famous uh, painting of George Washington uh, in the boat crossing Delaware. Um, so on Christmas Eve night, uh, Washington's forces uh, crossed the Delaware and attacked Trenton, which was uh, garrisoned with, um, let me see here, that was uh, Hessian soldiers. Um, <clears throat> yeah, give me one second there. Yeah, it was Hessian soldier, soldiers headed by uh, Johan Rahl. And um, they both had about six, it was about, about 2,000 uh, different, 2,000 troops. Now, they, they Christmas morning, they attacked the garrison. Um, they, most of the people, including the, uh, commander were still asleep. They were hung over and, uh, it was about 10 in the morning, but yeah, everyone was just, you know, they had been drinking all night long. And when the, when the U S forces arrived, the colonial forces arrived, they were, you know, 
most of them weren't even awake. It was not, you know, it was not really a battle. They they lost a uh, hundred soldiers. The the Hessians did. Uh, the Americans only lost two, and those were two guys that froze to death at night trying to, you know, trying to make the uh, the river crossing. So uh, it was eight hundred soldiers were captured, and the uh, the American soldiers were able to capture the garrison, which was huge amounts of ammunition, huge amount of uh, gunpowder, and huge amounts of firearms. So it was really more of a, uh, a tactical victory in the sense that um, they were able to surprise attack, not have any casualties, and capture the enemy and capture their their weapons. And that's um, you know a surprise attack like that, where you can have zero casualties, is really like a masterpiece. That's the goal of a surprise attack, you know. Nice, yeah. So what you're saying is that America is really superior in every way. I mean, that's really the theme that I got there. Yeah, I mean, that's really the theme of this whole show. Okay. All right. As long as we understand that. And just and don't still, turn on... Yeah, and I still have a lot of animosity for British soldiers. Anybody that's in, in England listening to this right now, I want you to call up your favorite veteran and tell him to go fuck himself. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. I don't say it is. We're drinking coffee, not tea right now, right? Goddamn right. All right. Uh, that's all. Now, don't turn on TV and look at the news and see what kind of decisions Americans are making in, you know, in Washington or anything right now, because that might get away from the theme that we're trying to present. Uh-huh. But if you just focus on the Battle of Trenton and George Washington, let's just... Right. Let's just stick hang to Hang tough right there, right? Uh-huh. So... But, I mean, that's it. So, you know, one of the ways that you can dominate is by having superior skill, by being a better soldier. Um, one of the ways to be a better soldier is training. Um, learning to master your weapons, learning to really develop your skills and you know, use what you have, you know, we, we don't have full auto machine guns or cool things. You know, you might not have a Barrett 50 that's, you know, going to make you a dominating force, but being the quick draw or being an accurate shooter could be the difference. You know, if, if you're taking out five guys to every one, then, you know, you can change the outcome. And, with training, the way to do that, let me tell you about the Club Timer 3 from Pact. This thing will change your whole perspective on training. Um, basically, it's a shot timer where you can actually measure and see what techniques are improving your skill, see what changes you can make in order to you know, really hone your skills down to perfection and things like that. Being able to measure and record what's happening, you can really change the outcome. So you should check these guys out. They're on Facebook. They're at pacta.com and just see what's available there. And I'm just saying you could maybe change the way you're shooting. So with that, stay safe, and we'll talk to you guys next week.
The Survival and Basic Badass Podcast is a proud member of the Self-Defense Radio Network. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.